Hello listeners, I hope that you're having a wonderful day. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and I think this is a really important topic for us to talk about for a number of reasons. Talking about mental health in general can be really important because it helps people know if they're struggling with mental health, what might be the cause of it, and it helps us reach out to friends when we see them going through a struggle. Sometimes it can be really difficult to identify the warning signs. For instance, one of the common warning signs of depression is losing interest in things, but it might be hard to know if you're losing interest in things in terms of depression or if maybe something just happened that you're not enjoying that activity anymore. So some of these things can be difficult to notice on their own, but knowing what the warning signs are and how to look out for them and then knowing how we can check in with friends and be supportive of them can be really helpful at getting people the help that they need because it's okay to get help. Just like any other kind of illness that a person might experience, Being able to get the help that you need and heal from that can be really helpful in having a better life and doing all the things that you want to do. Mental health is particularly important right now because experiencing trauma can increase the risk of certain mental illnesses. Right now with COVID going on, a lot of people are experiencing trauma from the changes in their life or the anxiety that might be caused by having a pandemic happening and a whole number of things. Another common trauma, unfortunately, is domestic violence. And this can also have an impact on someone's mental health. People who experience a trauma like domestic violence or like going through a worldwide pandemic could be at higher risk for certain mental illnesses such as depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Hearing that may be concerning, but it is important to know that there's always plenty of hope. Sometimes when people hear statistics on increased risk, it can feel like you're doomed to have all these problems. But that's really not the case, and the purpose isn't to scare anyone. The reason why we make these kinds of associations is that making these connections can get you the right sort of help. So if experiencing domestic violence was associated with your developing anxiety, then simply working on the anxiety might not be as effective as helping you to address that underlying root cause. If you're able to process the domestic violence you experienced and heal from that, then that is going to probably help a lot in reducing that anxiety that you might be experiencing and helping you to know the right ways to handle that. So these things all go together and having the whole picture helps us understand the problem better and get to the best solutions possible. The brain has an incredible capacity to heal. This has been proven in science, and so you can absolutely make progress and be healthy again. There's no being doomed, it's just a matter of needing to know what help you need and to reach out for that help so that you can heal the right way and reduce these risks. Addressing the right things and getting to the root will help you get there more effectively. So today we're going to talk about some tips for healing and coping. So these can be things that you can use whether you've experienced a trauma or even if it's just regular day-to-day stress. At the network, we are not certified clinicians or therapists, so we're not going to be giving really in-depth mental health advice in this podcast. We're more going to be talking about some easy tips that anybody can use for reducing stress or handling difficult emotions. But we are also going to talk about some 
places where you can reach out to help or some first steps that you might take for a more serious mental health concern. So we will guide you in the right direction towards that as well. So we'll try and do a little bit of all things. But there are some important things that I think are really important to remember when we're talking about coping skills and healing. The first is that you'll need to practice and make an effort to commit to whatever strategies that you're trying. The reason for this is because sometimes we hear something that sounds good, like maybe you go to a wellness training and they talk about mindfulness meditation. That can sound really great, but if you do it that one time at the training and then you just don't even think about it for another year and you get really distressed, it's hard to recall back to that time when you heard that. Because for a lot of us, when we feel really emotional, it might speed up our heart rate, it might make it so that our minds aren't thinking clearer, and we're not able to recall information from that long ago. But if I were to think that mindful meditation, for instance, was really helpful to me, and I practiced that five minutes every morning, regardless of how I was feeling, it would make it more natural and something that I could easily call back. So if I was in a really distressed state, it wouldn't be so hard to remember something that I've been doing every day for several months. That would be much easier than calling back something from a long time ago. So one thing I find with people saying that they don't find coping skills or strategies to be helpful is that it's kind of that scenario. They hear great ones, they try it once, they think, oh, this is fun, but then they don't remember to do it. And so they don't think it's very helpful to them. Some of these things you really have to try. And there are also things that might not work right away. For instance, breathing techniques. Some people will say that they just don't get it and it doesn't work for them right away. But then when they try it and make a routine of it and keep committed to that process, they have a breakthrough where it does actually work for them. I think it can be similar in any of these kinds of strategies. It might be something that initially is so foreign to you and so unusual, like affirmations, for example, they'll say when giving positive affirmations, which means saying something like, I am beautiful in the mirror every morning. If you don't actually believe that, it's going to obviously feel very like fake and difficult in the beginning. But the point is that you keep saying it with confidence every day until you get to the point where you do actually believe that and you do believe that you're beautiful or whatever your affirmation is. So some of these things aren't necessarily designed to make a huge impact the first time you do it. It's the fact that you keep practicing it and keep committing to doing it, that it gets easier over time and starts to work more effectively. So I think when we talk about any of these, that that's really important to remember is that if you wanna try something and you want it to work, then you're gonna to have to practice it and commit to it. The one thing that makes that a little bit difficult, of course, is that different strategies work for different people. So there's always a possibility that it's not the amount of time you're putting into it, it's just not effective for you. And that's okay. Sometimes it takes a little experimenting and seeing what works, trying out different things. But then sometimes we also just know right from the start certain things that are not gonna work for us that we can just tell like, um, 
If you're somebody who's uncomfortable with people touching you, for instance, then it might be really difficult for you to do like a massage or spa type therapy. There's just some things we know right from the start are going to be more difficult for us and we can stay away from those but and try something that is more comfortable. But for some of us, it's just going to be a process of trial and error, experimenting, seeing what works and what doesn't. So that's one thing to keep in mind. I also think it's important to keep in mind that for anything you do, it's going to be a collaborative effort. I don't think picking out just one thing like doing a breathing exercise is going to help you cure all your problems. Some of the reasons for this are because different problems allow easier for different solutions based on a number of things, maybe the type of feeling you're experiencing, or it could be the setting. Like if I really like going for a walk in nature and that calms me down, that's great. But what do I do when I'm stressed at work? I can't just walk out the door and go for a walk through the woods. So sometimes we need different ones for different places. We might need different ones for different emotions. So if I'm feeling like really stressed and my heart's racing, I want something that's going to help calm that down. Whereas maybe if you're feeling really sad and like you can't get out of bed, you're gonna need something more energizing. So we need different types of strategies for different solutions, but also a lot of these things are only designed to get you through one step in a several step process. So a coping skill just helps you calm down or helps you think clearer or helps you just get into a better state emotionally but it doesn't solve a problem. So you get into that better state emotionally and then you take the steps to communicate with somebody about what happened, to brainstorm strategies, to research options. So there's a lot of multiple steps that go through somebody's difficult experience. So any of these things I list to you that we're gonna talk about today aren't necessarily gonna be the one thing that's just gonna fix everything for you. They're again just gonna serve one step or one small purpose in your whole process. So I know that, that it might sound like a lot of work and unfortunately healing does take work and it does take effort, but it's rewarding and it's worth it and it's something valuable to do in the end. So hopefully you'll be willing to put the work in that you need for yourself. So we're going to talk about some different types of strategies. I'm going to start with some of the more basic ones like the coping skills or breathing techniques and then we'll work through two strategies that you can use for a more serious mental health situation or somewhere where you might need a little bit more help. So I'm glad that you're listening today and hopefully whether you're somebody experiencing trauma or again just somebody going through daily stress that's looking for some ways to calm down and manage that better. I hope that something in this podcast will work well for you. Thank you. Let's get started. So the first thing that we're going to focus on is grounding techniques and breathing techniques. So the situation these would be most helpful for is a situation where you're really worked up, like maybe feeling very stressed, feeling very anxious, feeling very overwhelmed by something. Now, grounding techniques in particular work well for people who are in situations where they're maybe having a panic or anxiety attack or for people that might be dissociating. So the idea is to focus you back to where you are and to let you know that you're not in whatever situation you might be reliving or whatever 
really worrying thing you're going through is putting you into the safe location that you're at. So the idea is just to bring you back to the present, to bring you back to where you are, and to help you realize that you are in a safe place and that you are okay. Breathing techniques can work for that too, but they can also just be helpful for um, just feeling really stressed or having a lot going on or feeling very angry to help bring you to a level of calm. So a lot of times when we feel angry or anxious or stressed, we feel that like our heartbeat is increasing, our mind's racing, everything in our body feels really fast. So the breathing techniques help to slow things down so that you can think clearer and be in a calmer space as you decide your next steps. Now, grounding techniques and breathing techniques, again, are not designed to fix the whole problem. They're just designed to get you in an emotional place where you can better handle what's happening to you. So for grounding, since again, that's trying to focus you in the present, a lot of the strategies for grounding techniques are ways to do that. And I'm just gonna list a couple, but you can always look up more online or I talked to a therapist or doctor about them. There's a lot of different techniques out there, but these are just some basic ones. So the first one is the five, four, three, two, one. So what you do for this is first look for five things that you can see around the room. So if I'm looking through my office right now, I can see that I have a cup of tea. I have a phone. I have a notebook, the computer in front of me, and there's um, photos hanging on the wall. So that's five things that I can see. The next would be four things that you can feel. So maybe I feel warm in the sweatshirt I'm wearing. I feel a warm cup of tea in my hands. I can feel the, the temperature of the air. I can feel the softness of my socks. Maybe I can feel a texture in front of me, like if you have a blanket or a desk in front of you. So it's thinking of four things that you can feel. The next would be three things that you can hear. So I can hear a door shutting in another room. I can hear a ticking of the clock. Maybe you can hear a humming of a heater or an air conditioner. Maybe you can hear people talking around you. So it's whatever three things that you can hear. The next is two things that you can smell. So maybe there's a perfume in the air or cologne, maybe an air freshener. Maybe you can smell food that somebody's cooked or any kind of sense. And then the last one, the number one, would be something that you could taste. So maybe you taste toothpaste in your mouth or leftover food. Maybe you taste a drink that you have with you. For some people, when doing these last two, the sense and the taste, if they are in a situation where that's really difficult for them to figure out. Sometimes thinking of a favorite can be helpful too because that's also soothing. So if I think of um, like the scent of lavender, that's a smell that I really like and it's a very soothing smell. So if I can't smell anything in the room, I can maybe think of that too because that's again gonna make me feel safe and make me feel good as well. So it still meets the same purpose. But again, it's five things that you can see or that you can feel, three that you can hear, 
two that you can smell, and one that you can taste. And so by going through that process of thinking, looking around, trying to figure out where these things are, feeling things and listening for things, it takes you out of that panic moment you're in. And it helps you realize that, that you're safe. I'm just sitting in this office. So I'm in a safe place. I'm not in these memories that might be coming back or these stressful what if worst case scenarios that might be going on in my head. I'm just in a safe, secure place. So that can be really helpful for some people. To keep it a little bit simpler, if people don't want to, because I know the five, four, three, two, one is kind of a lot of different steps and a lot of things to remember. And if you're stressed, that might seem like a difficult thing to do. But one thing that can also be helpful that's similar is to pick a color and to look around the room to try and identify as many things as you can in that color. So if I picked blue, for instance, I have a blue wall in my office. I have a paper on my desk that has blue. I have a hand sanitizer that's in a blue bottle, a blue pair of scissors, a blue pen. So I can go around and look at everything that's in that color. And again, that's helping me focus on the room I'm in, taking me away from what I might be worrying about and giving me kind of a helpful distraction that makes me feel more secure and more in the present. So this can be helpful again for panic or anxiety attacks or if you're dissociating or if you're in a flashback. They're all things that can be helpful at just reminding you again of your safety and security. And if you see a friend who looks like they're in one of these situations, like they might be having some kind of panic attack, you can go through these steps with them because it might, again, be difficult for them to remember or to know to use them when they're in that moment of panic. So you can help guide somebody through these and that would be a really helpful thing to do with a friend as well if you notice that. So there are a lot of other different types of grounding activities. You're welcome to look up more and use whichever ones work for you. That's just, I think, a simple introduction and a couple simple ones that you can use. So next we'll talk about breathing activities. There are a lot of different breathing activities out there. There are some that are more fun for kids. So one, a couple of things that kids might like there's one called balloon breathing, where you imagine you're a giant balloon and you're breathing in air and getting really, really big. And then when you let out the air, you deflate. That can be a fun one for kids because it's more visual. They can pick the color of their balloon, the way it looks. You can also do ones with noises like hiss breathing. So I breathe in on a count of three. And then when I let out my breath, I hiss like a snake's. So some of these things can add like a different level to it again for kids or just to make it like more fun and silly for you so that it's a little bit more relaxing. There are some breathing techniques that involve a lot of movement. So maybe like raising up your arms when you're breathing in and then lowering them down and letting your body like relax in a hanging position when you breathe them out. So those are a little bit harder to do on the podcast because I can't exactly show you them happening, but there are a lot of more active physical ones if that works for you. Sometimes that can feel really good to get that little stretching in as you're doing it as well. Or it can be as simple as just taking a deep breath, picking a count that sounds reasonable. I usually go with three because sometimes I see people will do things like breathing in for a count of five, but that can kind of feel like 
a lot for some people. I guess it depends on how quickly you're counting. For me, the three is comfortable. If you feel more comfortable with a five, that'd be fine. But we would be, we can do one now. So breathing in on a count of three, in one, two, three, feeling your belly fill up with air. And then breathing out on a count of three. One, two, three. Making sure that the out is nice and slow. Some people will breathe in fast and then breathe out like slower. So they might breathe in for a count of three and then breathe out for a count of five. Whatever is most comfortable for you, but just making sure that you're really filling with air and that you're really letting it all out is going to help slow down your heart rate and slow down your movement. Some people like adding in a pause too. So maybe I'll breathe in on a count of three and then hold it for a count of three and then breathe out. And that's a good strategy too. There are some things out there online where you could do like uh, print out a star and you follow along the edges of the star. So you can find things like that as well. If it's helpful for you to have something to kind of trace your hand around as you breathe, there's a lot of different techniques out there for breathing. But again, the point is mostly just making sure that you're taking that nice deep breath that you can feel really filling up your lungs and your belly and then breathing out however it works best for you. So again, those are good strategies for getting you to a calmer place where you can think clearer, where you feel a little bit safer and you can process what's happening. It's step one in a situation because breathing on its own isn't necessarily going to fix the situation. It might in some cases, like if you're experiencing road rage and you just take deep breaths, that's really all that you need to solve that situation because you're not going to necessarily be planning ways to make the roads work better in the future. Maybe you would, I don't know. But for some people, I guess the breathing or the grounding technique can help you just get through that moment and that's all you need. But for some more serious situations, like if you're feeling really stressed by your workload, you can take that breathing exercise, but then you're going to come up with your next step. So if I'm stressed by work, I might take a couple of deep breaths and then maybe I'm going to write down a to-do list. Maybe I'm going to work with my calendar to schedule when I can get certain things done so I can realize that this is actually manageable. It sounds like a lot of tasks, but when I break them up in terms of priority and kind of balance them out throughout my week, it actually isn't as bad as I thought. So sometimes you're just going to take that step one and go to step two. Sometimes a coping skill, again, is all you need. If you just need to calm down with maybe an irritating person at the grocery store or difficulty with being in the car, sometimes the deep breath is all, but sometimes we need a next step too. So we'll talk about the next thing, which is going to be healthy coping skills. So we're going to talk about healthy coping skills. Now, some of the things that I talk about today are going to overlap with each other a little bit. So we're going to try and distinguish some of the differences, like breathing techniques and the grounding techniques, for instance, could be healthy coping skills that you have. But they are also a little bit different because they can, like I said, be strategies for a particular kind of situation. Coping skills can be a little bit more general. They might be things that you use to get through ongoing situations that you can't necessarily do a whole lot to change in the moment. 
They might be things that you just kind of do every day to help deal with your amounts of stress. So they're a little bit different. We're also going to be talking about self-care later, which is a little bit different as well, even though people often use them interchangeably. But with coping skills, they're basically a way that somebody deals with the situation. And there can be healthy or unhealthy coping skills. So all coping skills are things that make you feel a little bit better in the moment. But when I say healthy coping skills, I think they're things that are going to make you feel better in the moment without having any negative consequences. Whereas some of the more unhealthy coping skills, they also will make you feel better in the moment, but they might have negative consequences associated with that. So an example, sometimes people for coping skills will use drinking alcohol or self-harm. So things like that are things that can ultimately harm the person in the long run. So if they're drinking a lot to cope with the situation, drinking is a depressant, so it could make the person feel worse at a certain point. It might make them feel better initially, but then get to a point where it makes them feel worse. It can lead to health problems or potential addiction. It can, if somebody is drinking to the point of getting drunk all the time, it could potentially inter um, affect the relationships that they have with people. Then the same with self-harm. It's something that might make somebody feel better in the moment, but it is something that could be dangerous because sometimes it can get out of hand to a point where it can really hurt the person physically or cause health problems for them. So while I acknowledge that those are coping skills and that they are things that make somebody feel better in a moment and they are things that people turn to, we do want to try and work at developing healthier alternatives, which are coping skills that will also make you feel better, but will long-term not have any harmful consequences either. So an example of a healthy coping skill might be something like writing down your feelings. It will help you feel better to get them out of your system and to be able to express them. So it's something that might help you in the moment, but it's also not gonna have any consequences long-term for you. It's something that's healthy for you to do and isn't going to harm you. Now you might argue that maybe writing would harm you if you wrote something personal down and somebody found it, but some people in their coping skills do like to write like letters of what happened and then rip them up or burn the letter after to kind of like fully release it and get rid of it. So you can do something like that too. You don't have to necessarily hang on to these things to reread them or to risk anyone else reading them. You could if you want to, but some people like that feeling of being able to get rid of it, like they're really like throwing it out of their life too. So whichever way works for you, but writing would be an example of a healthy coping skill. Some people like being in nature, it makes them feel better to have that connection. So to go along with that, that might also work its way into sports or different activities. There have been people who have talked about how like going surfing has been really healing for them with post-traumatic stress disorder, or there are people that turn to um, like playing soccer or basketball or any kind of different activities. But some people just like sitting outside in the sun and breathing it in for a few minutes or just going through for like a light casual walk. So there's a lot of different ways that you can incorporate that connection with nature that can feel really soothing. I understand not all people are as much of outdoors people as others. So again, it's one of these things where some things are going to work for you and some things are going to work better for other people. 
some people like doing something that just distracts them for a little bit. So maybe that's watching a favorite video, reading a book, playing video games, doing something that you love. I think with any of these things, and also with like listening to or playing music, these are things that can be really helpful. One thing I do think people should always keep in mind is just knowing yourself really well and knowing which ways they will make things better or make things worse. So for example, music, Sometimes people, when they're sad, like listening to sad music because they connect with it and they feel like they're not alone and that's really healing for them. Whereas some people, if they listen to sad music while they're sad, it's really just kind of holding them in that sad state and making them feel worse and making them feel more and more sad. So you want to know those types of things about each other, about yourselves to know if maybe something would be better for you. Like maybe listening to that upbeat, happy music is going to pull you out of that sad feeling instead. Or maybe listening to music isn't a good idea for you. So knowing these things about yourself is important. The same with video games. Some people feel a lot of stress release playing video games, which is completely fine. Some people get really stressed and frustrated and aggressive playing video games. So you want to think about if it's really working for you and how to pick things that are actually going to be healthy and soothing to you. Some people like essential oils. The different smells can help them, like maybe putting a little bit of like lavender on your palm to sniff or using them in different ways. Uh, a lot of people go by those. Sometimes people are not big fans of them for whatever reason. Maybe they don't interact well with them or I know um, having pets, some of them shouldn't be around pets. So there's different things that you might want to consider with any of these, but they're just little strategies that kind of take your mind off the situation and make you feel good about yourself. So I think when picking coping skills, you want to pick things that you can do pretty easily and that are things that make you feel good and help take your mind off the things that are going on that continue to be healthy in the long run and don't necessarily have any negative consequences for you. So whether that's going for a run, talking to a friend, having a hot cup of tea, some people like showers or baths to help them relax. There's a lot of different types of strategies you can use. You can write things down. You can make a song about it. You can do artwork. A lot of people find art therapy very helpful. So finding these kind of different things that maybe cater to your strengths or tap into your expressiveness and help you process and handle those. So that's a little bit different than self-care, but they're also a little bit similar. So for self-care, I think a lot of people I see use them interchangeably. And the way that I've distinguished coping skills from self-care is that self-care is really focused on like meeting your basic needs and taking care of yourself. So when we think about self-care, we think about things like making sure that you're sleeping well, so getting yourself to bed at a certain time, having a calming bedtime routine to help make sure you're getting the amount of sleep that you need, eating well, trying to eat more nutritionally um, when you're going through a tough time, things like showers or baths, um, taking time for yourself to do like little things that you need to recharge. So maybe if you're stressed at work, taking that break to go have a coffee or to talk to a coworker for a moment. So the self-care is kind of the same as coping skills, but they're sort of more everyday things that really take care of your body, your health, and the things that you need in life. Whereas coping skills 
can also do those things, but they can also be just like things that are fun or distracting, like watching silly videos or um, playing a game with your friends. So they're a little bit different in those capacities. They're not necessarily about having daily needs met. They're more about just things that are distracting and positive and feel good to do. They're a little bit different, but they can be interchangeable and it's not really a big deal, whichever one you're saying it is, but they're different techniques that you can use as well. So if you are feeling really upset, focusing on your self-care is important to make sure that you're taking care of you because sometimes we can let those things slide. So if somebody is feeling sad or depressed, they might stay in bed and not be taking their showers or eating well or taking care of themselves. And that can make things feel a lot worse because your mental and physical health are so interconnected. So you do wanna make sure that you're doing what you need to take care of yourself. And even if that's all you can do in a day, if you're just so upset that you can't do any of the other things, as long as you're taking care of yourself, that's a really good first step towards getting better and getting to where you need to be. So those are strategies you can use as well. The next ones we're gonna talk about are ones that are a little bit more active or involve different uses of your body to help you calm down or cope or deal with things. Another thing to keep in mind is that it generally makes our mental health feel better if we have purposes, different goals in life or things that we're striving for, different outlets and things that we're connected to. So I think another thing could be to, would be to identify your strengths and passions. So sometimes for people finding something that they're really passionate about helps improve their mental health greatly. It could be something like rock climbing or surfing. It could be something like riding horses. It could be that you're working on a novel that you're writing. It could be that you just have little self-improvement goals that you're working towards in your day-to-day -day life. It could be having a garden or learning how to cook. But sometimes having different things we're working towards in life can help us because if you're upset or stressed, it can feel sometimes all-consuming your bad situation, whether it be struggles with a relationship or struggles with work or just general mental health struggles, it can feel like that's like all that's going on and that things just are really bad. But if you have little things outside, like you have this goal you're working towards, you have this hobby that you feel really passionate about, or maybe you're volunteering to help other people or you're advocating for a cause, those types of things help remind us that there's purpose and there's meaning in our life and there's other things that we have to look forward to. There's things that will break us out of what we're going through and there's things that make life worth living and make life wonderful and beautiful for us. And the more of those things you can include, the better your mental health is going to be because again, it helps you from being kind of taken out of that tunnel vision that we can get into with really difficult situations and helping you realize that there's so much more going on and that there's so much more you benefit from. So I think it helps to try new hobbies, to identify different things in your community you can be involved in and try and find things that you really like and feel really passionate about to try and identify strengths of yours. So they're like positive things about you that you can turn to and feel good about. 
And also setting goals. Having goals can help get you through situations. Now, I think when we're setting goals, it's important to always be realistic and to start small because having a lot of small little goals is great because then you're coming up with accomplishments, you're making achievements, and that feels really good and positive, even if it's small. Sometimes when people set goals, they go really big. And it's not to say that you can't go big, but if our goal is really big, like I decide I'm going to create a best-selling novel, that's a huge thing to strive for. And it doesn't mean that I can't get there one day, but it means I'm probably going to feel a lot of failure or overwhelmingness because I'm trying to get to something that seems so far away. It's not necessarily going to benefit me when I'm upset or distressed because it's another thing that maybe just feels way too far out of my hands. But again, that's not to say not to go for your dreams because you can reach those big ones. But if I bring it down to a level that's smaller, like for writing a novel, for instance, maybe I decide and said that it's going to be my goal to write f- like 500 words a day or that I'm going to write a chapter of a novel in this month. Those are little goals that will work towards getting me to that big, huge goal that I have. But it's also going to give me little milestones that I can make along the way so that I feel like I'm moving along. I feel like I'm making progress. I'm getting the joy and great feelings out of each little goal that I hit. And it makes it more realistic that I will get all the way to that big goal. But I mean, having a big goal like that, again, isn't necessarily realistic because there's a lot of factors I can't control in that. So that's another thing we're going to talk about. But for this purpose of this example, the idea is just that if you set those small steps, it helps you to stay motivated and more likely to be working towards the goals that you have because you're making progress and that feels good. And each of those little goals is something that you've done. And so it helps take away from the overwhelmingness or the far out of reachness of it and helps you move towards that. But the other aspect is to try to make them more realistic. So I, if I was writing a novel, can't guarantee that it's going to be a bestseller because there's a lot of factors that go into that. If a publisher accepts it, if people read it, all these different things that are out of my control. So when you're setting a goal, you want to try and focus on what is in your control. So maybe instead of focusing on it being a bestseller, I just focus on finishing a novel because that's something I literally can do. It's something that's realistic and it's available to me and all the aspects of it are in my control. And then maybe, maybe my bigger dream will come true, but I want to focus on the realistic part because that's what I can control and moving forward towards that is going to feel good. So whatever that goal is of yours, you do want to try and consider that too in what factors are in your control or out of your control because ultimately you can never control other people. So trying to make your goal something that depends on other people can set you up for failure that's not really your fault because it's got other things involved in it. But if we set something that's well within our control and something that we can do, it's going to be more rewarding because we'll know that we can get there. We'll be able to set those smaller steps 
and it's something that we can definitely accomplish. So you do want to be realistic and you want to try and do small things that you can work up to. So you can dream anything you want to and you can strive towards and work towards anything that you want to do. All sorts of things are possible. But if you make your goals realistic and small, it's just more likely to keep you motivated, to keep you going, to keep you working towards that. And having those goals can be really beneficial when you're struggling. Because when it seems like you're getting those thoughts in your head, like, what's the point of this? Why even bother? You have things to, reasons to bother. You have things to care about, things that keep you engaged in more positive aspects of life. So that goal setting can be really helpful too, because it keeps you going. There are a lot of people that get through difficult times by saying, that as hard as it is where they are now, they want to keep fighting because this one thing or the several things is worth it to them. It's something that gives them a reason that they're like, well, this might be going wrong, but at least I have this that I'm working towards. So having those goals can be really helpful at developing a healthy mental health state as well. But in a lot of these things we talked about, there's strategies that you can use. There are things that can help you build up your self-esteem, things that can give you things to look forward to, to handle situations, but they don't necessarily solve problems. So it's good to think of some problem-solving strategies too. There are a lot of them out there, things like learning good communication, being able to brainstorm through different options, having people you can reach out to that can connect you to different resources, Having those next steps is really important too. But like we said in the beginning, some things can be more serious mental health concerns and they might be things that are out of your hands. If you have a clinical mental disorder like depression or anxiety or schizophrenia, some of these little tips might make you feel a little bit better, but they might not necessarily be all you need. It might be a situation where you need a little bit more help, maybe a doctor to go through in case it's something that you might need certain types of therapy or medications for or different things like that. And there's no shame in that. It's completely okay. There are things that you're born with, they're not in your control, and there are things that can be healed and can be treated and things that you can get a professional's help for to help you have a better life. So if you think you might be in those kinds of situations, again, we are not mental health professionals, but some things that I would recommend you do is to first start with a screening at sites like going to Mental Health America. You can do their screening tools for depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, bipolar disorder, any of the different types, just to kind of familiarize yourself with the symptoms, the warning signs, and to get an idea of if you're somebody that might want to consider talking to your doctor about that. It can help you to walk through them. It'll just ask questions like, how many times do you feel like you lose interest in things, and different things that can help you identify where you might be at at all those. Now, screening tools are not a diagnostic. They're not something that's going to confirm for you, but it will give you an idea if, you know, you're not really experiencing many of these symptoms, so maybe it's something else, or you have a pretty good amount of symptoms. It's something that you should probably talk to your doctor about. It can help kind of 
encourage you a little bit in that direction and maybe give you a starting point. So if you did a screening and it showed that you were experiencing some of the symptoms, then you could print that out and you could bring it to your doctor and say, these are the things I'm concerned about. These are the things I'm noticing. Can we talk about if it might be connected to bipolar or depression or whatever it may be? And that's a good conversation starter. And it's something that can help people, I think, because sometimes we might wonder about things, but maybe not have the validation in them. So maybe we might think like, I, maybe I shouldn't be thinking this, or maybe this doesn't really apply to me, or I don't know that much about it. So the screening tools can kind of help give you that validation that some of these things match up and that that's worth having a conversation. And I think that's where they're important to do. So you can check out ones like that. You don't need to do a screening tool, of course. It's just an idea that sometimes helps people feel a little bit better. You might feel like you have a set of talking points again to go to the doctor with if you did do that. But you could talk to a doctor. It could be a primary care physician, any doctor that you go to about some of the concerns that you're having and they can help you with making recommendations. You could also look up different therapists in your area, maybe using health insurance to do a provider search or maybe just doing a Google search of who's in your area. Now, I think a couple of things to keep in mind with therapy that are really important because sometimes people get a little nervous or unsure about it and that's perfectly fine. There are different therapists that are specialized in different things. So sometimes reaching out to a therapist that matches what you're experiencing can be more beneficial. So if I am struggling with having experienced domestic violence in my past, it may be helpful for me to go to a therapist that has that listed in their background because they're more likely to be familiar with it, to know the dynamics of power and control, to know all the warning signs of abuse, to know how it tends to affect survivors. So they might be a more knowledgeable person who is going to give me a more trauma-informed response, somebody that will understand what I'm going through, whereas somebody else would hopefully give me a kind and compassionate response, but unfortunately they might not know all the dynamics and might not be well informed and might maybe give misinformation or not connect it as well as somebody who's more experienced in it. So it's good to try and match your needs and to know that there are different counselors for all different things, like there are ones that have uh, more of an LGBTQ focus, you can pick males or females. So there's lots of different identity type things you can connect with as well. And so that's good. I think for picking out a therapist, you do want to shop around and you do want to find somebody who's the best match for you. There are people who might not work out for you, that you might feel like they're not telling you the right kind of information, that they're not really connecting with you, that they don't really understand your experience, and that happens. So I do think that's important to acknowledge because sometimes people might go to one therapist have that kind of negative experience and say that they never want to go back. And that would be really unfortunate because there are ones out there that are going to be a better match for you. So it can be helpful to go to a bunch of different ones to maybe try it out, see if you find that connection with them, if there's somebody that you feel comfortable talking with and can open up to. And if they're not, then 
absolutely go to the next person. You don't have to stay with one person. They understand that you want to find somebody who's the best match for you. And that's perfectly okay. You want to find somebody who's actually going to help you and who's going to be able to identify with you and to understand what you're going through. It's also important to realize there are a lot of different types of therapy. Sometimes people think of like, I'm just going to sit in a room and talk to somebody and there's no way that I see that as beneficial to me. Some people that is very beneficial to and that's all they want. If you're not that person, that's okay. But I want you to know that that one kind of traditional therapy is not the only option. I've heard of some people having really good luck with this type of therapy called um, like rapid eye movement and desensitization therapy. So that's something where the therapist will guide you through a series of eye movements because of how the eyes help process information in your head. So you would be thinking about the traumatic event and doing this kind of physical exercise with it, and it would help your brain process it. But you wouldn't have to actually say those words out loud or to ever tell that person what happened to you. So for some people, that might feel a lot more secure because they don't have to open up and disclose all this information, but they are processing through it and they are getting those healing benefits. There are also different types of therapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure therapies, some people incorporate things like nature or animals into the therapies that they do. So there really are a wide variety of options out there. It's not necessarily going to be the traditional one. You can find somebody who will go for a walk with you and talk to you outside if you're more comfortable instead of sitting in an office. So I think sometimes people get this misconception that it's this one very standard, typical type thing, and that's not something that they want to do. And if you don't want to do that, that's fine. But there's a whole bunch of options. So again, talking to your doctor or somebody that you feel comfortable with, if you had some other professional that you're already involved with, to try and find out what options are available or doing, again, a Google search or a search through your insurance provider if you have one. There are some places that will work with different financial backgrounds as well. So like some people have been turning to online therapy with like betterhelp.com or places like that because they work more with the financial situation they might be in if they don't have insurance or it might feel more comfortable to not have to physically go somewhere. So there are different options like that to look into as well. So you want to shop around and you want to find out what's right for you and explore all the different types. It's also good to know that there are nonprofits that can help you kind of short term with some of the things you're going through. Like if you were experiencing domestic violence, we have short term counseling that we can offer you. We have support groups. We can help you with things like housing or um, financial needs that you might have or getting furniture. We have lots of different resources for people experiencing domestic violence. There are nonprofits for sexual violence that can help connect you with doing like hospital police accompaniments, court accompaniments. They can help you with advocacy. They can help you with counseling. And there are like certain LGBTQ organizations like the trevorproject.org that works with LGBTQ youth. So there are a lot of different nonprofits that can again offer you short term things and can help connect you with resources that would be beneficial 
due to what you've specifically gone through. So if you're not looking for a long-term therapist, you just want somebody free and confidential that you can talk to for a few sessions or that can help you with some things that you need, like getting connected to housing or um, the victim compensation because of what you've experienced, we can help with those types of resources as well. And there's a lot of nonprofits like that. And also going back to that, things like the warm lines or hotlines, there are warm lines. What warm lines are, are situations where you just need somebody to talk to. There are even people who call them just because they feel lonely and want somebody that they can talk to about life. It doesn't have to be a serious situation. Hotlines are more for crisis situations. So if you're going through something where you feel like you need a little bit more immediate help or you're really distraught and in the moment, they can help you with that as well. Again, for domestic violence, sexual violence, there's suicide prevention hotlines, there's LGBTQ crisis ones. There are all sorts of options available for you. So seeking professional help can be something that some people need to do and that can benefit some people and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Our organizations exist because we want to help you and we want to be there for you and we recognize that sometimes it can be difficult to come forward and the stigma that can be involved and we are hoping to change that all the time because it shouldn't be there. You should feel comfortable getting the help you need and being able to heal through things and to be able to achieve all the things that you want to in life. So hopefully some of these different options have helped you to talk about these things. I think, again, just talking about mental health is always beneficial because it's something that impacts a lot of people. There are so many people who are dealing with mental illnesses or who are struggling emotionally or having difficult things in life. And being able to improve your mental health can be so beneficial. It's as important as physical health as everything else that you go through. It's a way to take care of yourself and it's so very valuable. But we need more people to have conversations because unfortunately that stigma does still exist. Some people still have a hard time reaching out for help. They don't know where to turn to. They don't know that there's options available for them. So it is really important to talk about it, to make it feel more normalized to get help and to know that there are resources out there and that it is okay what you're going through. We can help you. You're not alone. If you have any questions that we didn't talk about or anything that you would like to know more about, please let me know and I would be happy to include them in an upcoming episode or to talk to you one-on-one. -on -one. I think it would also be a good idea for us to do an episode on ways that you can help a friend. We did talk a little bit about some of those things in this episode, but I think that's kind of a more in-depth topic that we would really want to do a lot more with. So we'll consider that for an upcoming episode. But again, feel free to send me any feedback. I'd be happy to hear it. And thank you for listening to this one. It's great to start this conversation and hopefully you got something out of it. I hope that you have a great day.